Our reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis in chapter 32, beginning in verse 22. The same night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. The word of the Lord. In my old church, I had a parishioner who was a professor of communications at Illinois State University. And every semester, he taught a course called Environmental Communications. Knowing that my PhD work focused a lot on, on environmentalist philosophy, he always invited me for a guest lecture, which I delighted in. And every time I came to the class, I started with a question that was a sort of trick question for the students. I looked out, this huge seminar, and I would say, what is the good life? How is that a trick question? Well, you see, in Western history, in Western thinking, the good life was always associated with ethics and a life of virtue. It was the middle path between extremes. But I feel, and I think you probably will agree with me, that we live in a world and a culture that has many other connotations associated with the good life. The good life might be the kind of life where you're able to make it rain. The good life might be the kind of life described as the lap of luxury. Or maybe it's just having what you want, when you want it, whenever you want it. So I was surprised when I heard the answers of these millennial students. I called on a kid to my right. He had sandy blonde hair and a Cardinals baseball cap, so I know he was a good egg. I said to him, what do you think the good life is? And he says, I don't know. High flyers at this school. I don't know. I said, no, come on, try me. What's the good life? And he goes, I guess it's uh, for me to have the kind of work that pays me enough to live in my means. What? What college kid says that? He wasn't falling into my trick. And so I asked somebody else in the room. I, I saw someone over here who I thought might have thought through it a bit more. And so I said to this young woman, what do you think the good life is? And she said, well, I guess it's probably to graduate from here without too much student debt. Well, there's a novel idea. 
and then maybe I get a job, and she said, I'd like to have a spouse and have some kids. I don't, I, I don't want anything extravagant. I just want to have a home with some kids and a husband. Again, I heard another rather modest picture, maybe even a noble picture of the good life. I was impressed by these millennials. Maybe there's hope for the future. But nevertheless, even though those folks were very, very good examples of people trying to think in better ways about the good life in our culture, you and I both know it has a much darker side. I intimated that earlier with those phrases I used just a moment ago, like lap of luxury. But if you take somebody who has enough of sickness inside their soul, a moral conscience that's been bent enough, well, seeking the good life produces cons of all types. I don't need to mention too many names, perhaps Bernie Madoff or Mr. Epstein as an example. Our culture is not very good at producing people who are satisfied with what they have. And when out of order, we produce cons. Jacob. Jacob was a con man. Jacob cheated and he lied and he manipulated his family one side all the way to the other. And here's the thing, right before everything was to come to fruition, when he was about to face his reckoning, when he needed to get his comeuppance, he fled, he ran away. You remember Jacob. If you don't, let me remind you of two stories that reveal the character of this con. The first one is the story of his birth. You see, he was born a twin. His older brother Esau came out of the womb right before him. And it is said that Jacob was on the heels of Esau, literally, grabbing his heel on the way out of the womb. His name, Jacob, literally means trickster or heel grabber. It's a metaphor, really. Jacob was seeking to be first, even at his origin. Later in life, we know that Esau was the older brother. Scripture is really sometimes very interesting and silly and funny when you read it. It says Esau was a really hairy man, a lot of red hair, very, very hairy. He smelled bad because he liked to go outside and hunt wild game. Esau was his father, Isaac's favorite son and the first son. So when Esau died in that culture, or pardon me, when Isaac was to die in that culture, Esau, the firstborn son, would get the birthright would get the inheritance, which means that younger siblings like Jacob would principally work for the Lord, their brother, the rest of their days. Jacob didn't like that. He always was trying to find a way to get ahead. So when Isaac was lying on his deathbed and he was basically blind, he said to his eldest son, before I give you your, your inheritance, I'm hungry, I'd like, a, I'd like a steak before I go. Would you go hunting for me one last time? And so Harry Esau went out to look for game for his father. Meanwhile, Jacob and his mama, who were conspiring to help Jacob get ahead, they hatched a plan. The mama said to Jacob, why don't you go steal your brother's birthright? Here's what you can do. Go get some skins of hair, you know, some hides, some animals, and wrap them on your body. It, it'll confuse your dad. He won't be able to see, but when he feels you, he'll think you're like your hairy brother. Jacob had smooth skin. 
And to go put on some of your brother Esau's clothes, the really smelly ones that are hanging out back. That way when you come in there and you sound like Jacob, he'll still smell you and you'll smell like Esau and so you'll confuse him. And so Jacob goes through with the entire scheme. And while his father is on his deathbed, he receives what was meant for his older brother Esau. Jacob is driven by first half of life desire. What's that mean? I've encouraged you as a congregation to read this book with me by Father Richard Rohr, Falling Upward, Spirituality for Two Halves of Life. And what in this book is pretty plainly stated by Richard Rohr is that our culture is absolutely obsessed like Jacob with first half of life concerns. Those are the concerns associated with the ego, with creating an identity. They're they're the concerns about uh, who who am I to the world? What kind of job will I have? And can I have a house? And can I start building up a nest egg and a 401k? The clothes I wear and the people I associate myself and what kinds of clubs I'm a part of. It's the kind of life associated with getting a leg up and ahead. Jacob was right there first half of life issues, he wanted to chart for himself a bigger identity than just the trickster little brother. He wanted more, and he took it. And then he runs. Then he runs from, from Esau for, for some time, for years. He goes on adventures, and he has misadventures. He tricks people, and he is tricked by others. And now he's got two wives, two maidens, kids. He's got lots of stuff. And it's time for him to go home. But he's afraid. You know, I think the saying is true. Once you leave home, you can never really go back again. It's not the same. I went back home. I love going back home to where we're from. And when we go, I typically go to the church I used to serve. And most of the time, they ask me to preach. And the last time I gave my sermon, I gathered up some friends from the church afterwards and we went to Monocle's Pizza afterwards and we're sitting there at Monocle's like we used to. They said, how does it feel to preach here again? Does it feel, is it like riding a bike? You just kind of get back on and get moving? I said, yeah, yeah, that was nice. And then I thought about it more and I realized it actually is kind of strange. It felt more like finding a bunch of my old high school clothes and trying to put them on. They just don't, fit right anymore. You can never go home again because when you go out and you have an adventure in the world and you come home, you are in fact changed. Jacob has had some adventures. But I don't think that's the real reason he's afraid to go home. I think, I think he's just straight up afraid of Esau. You know this because he sends his wives and his people in a different direction. The worst thing in his imagination is that Esau could could ambush him and take him and his family. So he sends them off on his own, and then all of a sudden, for what I imagine to be the first time in his adult life, Esau, or pardon me, Jacob is alone. I don't think a man with two wives and attendants and kids is ever alone. Now he is alone. And then the scripture, if we're honest Christians, does some weird storytelling. There's not a whole lot of transition. It just says he's alone and it's nighttime and all of a sudden there's another character there, a person, a man who comes to wrestle him. Never happened to me like that in my life. 
Don't know who this person is. Don't know where this person came from. But all of a sudden, he is in a wrestling match with what I call the night man. And through the night, he wrestles. And that makes sense to me on a very human level. Because in the dark, it is in the dark and it is in, in the nighttime when I do my most wrestling. How about you? It wasn't long ago when I woke up from a very bad dream. I have awful dreams. This dream had conflict between me and people I care about, things were said, it was awful, and it felt so real. And I woke up feeling the emotions of the dream. You ever dream like that? Because I'm such a good husband, I didn't wake my wife to tell her about it. I do the thing that I shouldn't do. I simply go downstairs and watch TV. And I have a disease. I've told you about this disease. I call it the ruminator's disease. I start ruminating on problems. I start thinking about that dream. And once I ruminate long enough on it, that rumination gives birth to another and yet another. And next thing you know, I've got dark thoughts happening. I don't know if you've ever been in this vicious cycle of dark thoughts that give birth to new dark thoughts. Then I do something even dumber. I'm too smart for this, but I did it anyway. I pulled out my cell phone. I looked at social media. And then it got darker because I saw news stories and opinions and things. And then I, I'm just telling myself bad stuff. And before dawn comes, I'm no good. My life amounts to nothing. I've got nothing of value and I'm doomed. This is how I feel. And the sun comes up. And I hear the gracious noise of Colleen getting ready. So I run upstairs and I tell her all about it. And Colleen looks to me with this profound wisdom in her eyes and she says, just wait till the sun comes up. It's always better in the light of day. And that's true for me. It's almost as if the sun comes up and we get back to the normal nature of life, that those ruminations fade away and I see them for what they are. They're not the monsters they were in the dark. I get this story because I do my best wrestling in the night. Now, I'm going to tell you that there are many theories about who Jacob's pugilistic partner is. Some people read this text and say, aha, this is Esau. His brother has met him out there on the field, and he's going to give him his comeuppance once and for all. Some have asserted that it's an angel. People who are really into psychology say that this is actually his ego. Jacob is wrestling with his own self. Text isn't very clear at the end until it lets you kind of believe that he's wrestling with God. I'm okay with all of it, really, but let me tell you this. If you wrestle with God, you can be certain that you're also going to have to wrestle with yourself. As he looks face to face with the divine, he has to get beyond his own ego, and so he does battle. It says that he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with God through the night. And then at some point, God touches his hip. Jacob is now injured. He's been exposed in the wrestling match. And he's marked by his struggle. Now here, I think, is a profound and universal spiritual point. That struggle is part of it. He's been reaching out his entire life for the first half goals making a name for himself, having money, being a success. And he's gone about it in all the wrong, unethical ways. 
Richard War says that sometimes the thing that leads us into the depth of life, the, the second half of life questions, we're, we're not only interested in stuff anymore, but we're interested in growing in wisdom, where we develop a gravitas of our personality, where we become important for the community, not because of how much money we have, give, or what we can produce, but because of that something special about our experience and people get life from it. And he says the thing that often bridges the first half immaturity to that second half growth and maturation is pain, suffering, failure, and falling. Listen to the words that Richard Rohr uses himself. There is no practical or compelling reason to leave one's present comfort zone in life. Why should you or why would you? Frankly, none of us do unless and until we have to. The invitation probably has to be unexpected and unsought. If we seek spiritual heroism ourselves, the old ego is just back in control under a new name. There would not really be any change at all, but only disguise, just bogus self-improvement on our own terms. Any attempt to engineer or plan your own enlightenment is doomed to failure because it will be ego-driven. You will see only what you have already decided to look for, and you cannot see what you are not ready to or told to look for. So failure and humiliation force you to look where you would never have otherwise. If that was confusing, let me say it this way. Failure, humiliation, pain, loss is essential to spiritual growth. Jacob felt that pain in the hip. He had done battle time and again. And he had to be hurt. He had to wrestle in the night. He had to look himself in the face and see who he really was for him to become who he will become. But alas, most of us never get there. That's the sad truth. Not even Christians. Most Christians don't really get there. I think the reasons are many, and some of them are this. I think too much of, a, of our society and too much of my life is about achieving. I'm just too busy achieving, aren't you? Like, you know, I got a goal, and then I work hard, and I make the goal happen. I can mark it off of a chart, and then I'm bored. Now i got to find another goal, and so I, I, I make another one, and I put it up on a chart, and I mark it off when I get there, and now i got to find another one. And, and as I say that to you now, I'm just sickened by how boring that really sounds. That kind of life doesn't even allow you to enjoy success. you got to find something else somewhere else all the time. So we're so busy with this. Or uh, we don't really get to the core of who we are and, and our pain to grow because we're too distracted by other people. It's the reason why people are on social media, comparing themselves to other people. And it's the only reason why people watch television programs like TMZ. We're living through other people's lives. And it rarely makes us feel better about our own. Or maybe it's because people are too idle. Idle without leisure. The real concept of leisure as an ancient Western one is very similar to the concept of contemplation. It doesn't mean being lazy. It means stopping from work so that you can become aware of the world, open to where you fit into it. 
Finally, another reason why we don't get there is because when we suffer pain and failing, we're people of excuses. We try to get out of the pain and hurt as quick as possible so that it doesn't actually take its toll and work on us. I'll remind you that here, Jacob wrestles all night long. Notice also that it was only when Jacob got alone that he was able to truly struggle with his truth. I know it might have been God wrestling with him, but make no mistake, that encounter can only happen when you get out of your own way and you quiet your mind and you take a look at who you really are. It's then that sometimes you taste your own medicine. Jacob is nothing if not at war with himself. You know, my parents came to town and they brought my girls gifts. Girls are excited. And then they take the girls over to see my nephews and they bring the nephews gifts. And what do you think happens when my nephews open their gifts? My girls are all of a sudden upset because they forgot the gifts they were just given. And it was a big to-do. The other day, Ruby was playing in her room by herself. That's the key. She was alone. She stood up and she walked into the other room where my mom was and she said, Gammy, I'm sorry for complaining the other day. You really do get us a lot of presents. Self-aware for a five-year-old. And even for her, and like me, it comes from time of quiet. In all of this, Jacob is preparing to live into his second half of life. A life where he'll become more than a folk hero, a kind of life where he will become a legend. You see, in this moment, he's given a blessing, a proper one, and a new name. From that day forward, he will no longer be called trickster Jacob. He will be called Israel, one who wrestles with God. What a name. What a name. Maybe it's a name we would all struggle to live up to. The kind of person who takes their faith and their doubt, that takes their joy and their sorrow, that takes their lament and their celebration, that takes their heart and wrestles it with the divine, getting involved with God, taking a hard look at their own self. He will now become the name of a nation. He will now become a name of what is also called the people of God. Jacob fell upward. And friends, if you want to take this home, let me encourage you to keep falling, but fall upward. Take a look at yourself and find out just how God will use your hurt and your pain to make you the kind of person that will make an impact on countless others. God bless you.